So Esther chapter 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At the time King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa and in the third year of his reign he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of propriety, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Beza, Habana, Bigtha, Agatha, Zetha, and Carcass to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So we just continue on in uh, chapter 2 of Esther. So later when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what he had done and what he decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin, a virgin for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all the beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beautiful treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jai, and uh, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father 
uh, nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favour. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther uh, was and what, had ha- what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came into the ki- it, sorry, before a girl's turn came to go into King Exerces, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summonsed her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. May God bless that reading to us. Lord God, please speak to us through your word now, we ask. Help us see what you would have us see. Speak through me so that I might speak only what is helpful and useful for building up your children. And Lord, we ask that by your word you would change us. Help us leave this place with a new appreciation of who you are and a renewed commitment to live for you because of who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever wonder if God is actually there? Now that might seem like an odd question to ask in church, <laughs> but here we are, talking to a God that we can't see, who doesn't seem to talk back. Here we are talking as if we have a relationship with this God, as if he's here with us in the room, 
As if the God who created the universe is actually with us and interested in us and listening to us. But is he? Is he really there? Do you believe that he is? One of the great struggles for people like you and me living in this day and age is to actually believe that God is there. I mean, we live in a time where basically everything that we can see can be explained in some way by science. Most of us don't see the kinds of miracles or clear actions of God that you read about in your Bibles. And so it's natural for us to doubt, is God there? Does he care? Maybe some of you are going through a difficult patch in your life at the moment. Maybe some of you are suffering. Maybe you know others who are suffering. Maybe things are falling apart and you're wondering, what is God doing in all this? Why doesn't he seem to care? Is he there? You might be here this morning and and this, this is the thing stopping you from calling yourself a Christian. You might like the message, it all sounds good, but you struggle to believe that it's real. Surely, if God was there, he would make himself clearer. Surely, he would intervene in this world. I mean, why hasn't God stopped the war in Ukraine? Why hasn't God provided food for millions and millions of people around the world who are starving? Why is it so hard to feel that God and I are actually in relationship? Why doesn't he seem to answer my prayers? Is he there? Does he care? Well, friends, this morning we're beginning a series in the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is written for people with these kinds of questions. For people who are doubting whether their God is really there, whether he's still interested in them. The events we read about in this book are are real. The the very first sentence in Esther chapter 1 says, This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces scattered from India to Cush. You see, these are real events in history. Xerxes was a real king. He was the king of Persia. Within the biblical storyline, this takes place in a time a a bit later than Haggai, which we looked at a few weeks back. This is in the time after God's people have been allowed to return to Jerusalem after 70 years in exile. But not all the Jews did. In fact, probably the majority of the Jewish people are still scattered throughout the Persian Empire under the rule of this King Xerxes. And the central event of this book of Esther, the, the main plot line, is something that we're not actually going to get to until next week. But in chapter 3, King Xerxes issues a decree to kill off every single Jewish person in the empire. He says, kill, destroy, annihilate every single person, man, woman, child. That, that is the situation facing God's people in the time of Esther. Total destruction. They're just starting to recover from having their city, their their capital city, Jerusalem, destroyed and being taken into exile by the Babylonians. 
They're just starting to make new lives for themselves in this new kingdom of Persia. And now the king issues a decree to destroy every single one of them. And they're wondering, is God there? Does he care? Is he going to step in? Is he going to intervene? And the book of Esther is the answer to that question. But it's a surprising answer. Because the the answer that is offered is offered in the most surprising way. And here's why. There's something unusual about the book of Esther. It's one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman. That's unusual, but there's something else. In ten chapters, the whole of the book of Esther, God isn't mentioned. Not even once. In the whole of these ten chapters, God doesn't speak, nor is he spoken about. There's no mention of the temple or sacrifices. There's no miracles. There's no prophecy. There's not even a single prayer. You might wonder, how did Esther get it in the Bible? If the Bible is the way in which God reveals himself to us, why include a book like Esther that doesn't even mention him? Well, here's why. Esther's written to show us that God is there even when it seems like he's not. Esther is written to show us that God works in miraculous, extraordinary ways, but that he also works in ordinary, unseen, unnoticeable ways. And this has huge implications for how we think about how God works in this world and about how he works in our lives. That's where we're going to go in the book of Esther. But we're starting this morning just looking at chapter 1 and 2. And Esther 1 and 2 is the story of a king, two queens, and an ace. I don't think that's a very good hand in any game, but that's what we've got. A king, two queens, and an ace. We've met the king already. His name is Xerxes. He's the king of Persia. If you have a different Bible, you might be wondering who I'm talking about because lots of versions will use his Hebrew name, Ahashwerosh. And I'm going to stick with Xerxes because that is slightly easier to say. Uh, Ahashwerosh is his Hebrew name. Xerxes is his Greek name. Same guy. Let's just call him the king. After chapter 1... Sorry. Chapter 1 is written to make us see that Xerxes is the most powerful king in the whole world. In verse 1, he is the king who rules over 127 provinces from India to Kush, which is a huge empire stretching all the way from modern day... Oh dear, there was a map. Stretching all the way from modern day Pakistan in the east to Sudan in the south. West. It, it's enormous. It, it was at the time the biggest empire the world had ever seen. He is powerful and he wants everyone to know it. So in verse 3, he throws a huge party with all the big wigs of the empire. He's got the princes, the nobles, the military leaders, and he goes for six whole months. That's some party. But if all that wasn't enough, immediately following that, he throws another party which is shorter, only seven days, but he invites absolutely everyone living in Susa. Rich and poor, great and small, everyone is invited and everyone is given as much as they like to drink. You can imagine what that party was like. 
So, so far we've seen Xerxes is powerful, he's wealthy, he's extravagant, and he wants everyone to know it. And so basically, the author of Esther is actually wanting us to see that Xerxes thinks of himself as a god. Which is why, have a look in verse 6 to 8. We get this long, detailed description of the palace, which sounds exactly like the descriptions that we see of God's tabernacle in Exodus or God's temple in 1 Chronicles. The precious jewels, the marble columns, the curtains, the silver, the gold. This isn't just a palace. This is a place of worship. You see, Xerxes thinks he's a god, and so he's inviting people to come and see what? The splendor of his glory. He wants people to come and worship him. But this king, this pseudo-god whose word must be obeyed, the king whose word cannot be broken, is about to be undone by his own wife. Because on the last day of the feast, he summons the queen to come parade her beauty before all the ogling eyes of his drunken guests. And she doesn't come. Isn't that a surprise? Who wouldn't want that? Now, you can hardly blame Vashti, can you? She refuses. It's a bold move. And so the king calls an emergency cabinet meeting with all the wise men of the empire. And so they say, what are we going to do? She refused. How dare she? This is a matter of national security. She must be stopped. If other women hear about this, we're doomed. Like, this is literally what they're saying. They are worried that by Vashti's example, the whole structure, the integrity of the empire will come undone. It's it's kind of hilarious. This is the most powerful empire in the whole world, and its leaders are worried about wives not listening to their husbands. It's crazy. But chapter 1 ends with the world's most powerful king commanding women everywhere to obey their husbands. And in case you're wondering, no, this is not the Christian pattern for men and women's roles in marriage. Yes, God also instructs husbands to lead their families and wives to submit to their husbands, but not like this. Husbands... The authority God gives you is not the authority of an army general who barks orders and demands obedience. That is not your job. He uses you to lead your wives by laying your life down for them. It is entirely different. Wives, yes, God does call you to submit to your husbands. But this is not so that he can do whatever he likes with you. You're called to submit out of reverence for Jesus. To submit, not because your husband is worthy of respect, but because Jesus is. I hope your husband is worthy of respect, but you can submit to him because Jesus is worthy of respect. This is what we see in Esther, is not the Christian pattern for marriage. There have been too many people to say that it is. And if you look at Ephesians 5, you'll see a very different picture. But we're kind of getting off the, off the topic. At this point, you sort of start to wonder why we've just spent a whole chapter talking about Xerxes and Vashti without hearing anything about Esther or God or the main thing that the book is actually about. (laughs) Well, here's why. 
Esther 1 shows us the height of worldly power. Of all the people in the world, Xerxes was the top. He is the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most glorious king the world had ever known. He is the epitome of human power. And God's just about to use him to do what he wants. You see, even Xerxes is in the palm of the hand of God. Because the book of Esther is basically just a series of it-just-so-happened events. It just so happened. And I'm going to spoil the ending here. Uh, God does save his people from the threat of destruction. But there's no miraculous intervention. There's no lightning bolts from heaven, no earthquakes. There's, God doesn't divide the sea so that they walk through on dry ground. He doesn't stop the sun in the middle of the sky. There's none of that. God saves his people like he's done so many times throughout biblical history. But he saves his people in a series of just ordinary ways, through a series of small, insignificant, unnoticeable events. Because it just so happened that Xerxes decided to have a banquet. And it just so happened that he had a little bit too much to drink and decided to summon his wife to entertain his friends. And it just so happened that Vashti said no and that she was deposed And as we move into chapter 2, it just so happened that the king's attendants would suggest that the king should run the first ever series of The Bachelor to find a new queen. And and it's really similar. (laughs) And it just so happened that one of the dozens, possibly hundreds of young women brought into the harem to possibly become the new queen was a Jewish girl named Esther. And it just so happened that Esther was born attractive. And it just so happened that of all the fine young women in the whole of this enormous empire, Xerxes chose Esther to be his new queen. Chapter 2 ends with one of God's people, Esther, a Jew, as queen of the most powerful empire in the world. And the position that Esther holds is going to be hugely significant in the outcome of this story. But before we get to that, I want you to think for a moment about Esther's behaviour. Because over many years of people reading this story in the Bible, everyone has an opinion about whether Esther did good or bad. You see, some people look at Esther and see a complete moral failure. She's a Jew, one of the people of God, someone who was set apart, distinctive, someone who was supposed to eat differently and dress differently and behave differently. But what does she do? Well, she keeps her identity secret. She betrays God by trying to blend in with the crowd. Daniel and his friends, they didn't do that. They were basically in the same boat. But what did Daniel and his friends do? Oh, they were courageous. They stood up to the king. They said, no, we will not eat your food. Daniel had courage, but Esther, no, no, she just crumbles. And not only does she hide her Jewishness, then she defiles herself by having sex with this man who was not her husband. And then she defiles herself even further by marrying this pagan king. 
You see, some people look at Esther and see a complete failure. Other people, on the other hand, see, well, it was Mordecai who told her not to reveal her Jewish heritage, and and Mordecai is her adopted father. She's just obeying and honouring her father. And it wasn't her choice to enter the king's harem. She was forcibly taken, which is probably true. And besides, becoming queen allowed her to do incredible good. So in the balance, it kind of all levels out, right? What do you think of Esther's behaviour here? Chances are, if I asked you all, I think we would be divided. Some of you would think she did good, some of you would think she did bad, other people would not be sure. But I want you to notice, what does the Bible say about Esther's behaviour? It doesn't say anything, does it? There's no verdict here, there's no comment, just a plain statement of what happened. And I think that's deliberate here. Now, I'm not saying there is no right and wrong. God knows what Esther did. God knows whether she did right or wrong. But the story as it's presented for us shows us something of how God works. Because, you see, the reality is we, don't, we, we can't judge Esther. We don't have all the information. We don't know the specifics of the circumstances that she faced. We, we just don't know enough. And it's not our job to judge her, is it? The thing we need to see in this story is that God uses both the good things that she does and the bad things that she does to achieve great things. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether Esther did the right thing or the wrong thing because God is able to work through them both. And you see, this is the ace that trumps all the other cards. Because the book of Esther is not about the king who ruled the biggest empire in the world. It's not about the queen who stood up to him. Nor is it about the queen who worked to secure the salvation of the Jewish people, as we'll read about in the subsequent chapters. Now, the book of Esther is a book about God. It's a book where God isn't mentioned, but that's because he's working behind the scenes. He's working to achieve his purposes. And nothing can stop him from doing what he decides is good. If God wants to use a drunken outburst by the most powerful king in the world to achieve his good purposes, he will. And if he wants to use the courageous actions of the queen to achieve his good purposes, he will. And if he wants to use an incredible sequence of coincidences to save his people from destruction, he will. And if he wants to use the betrayal of a close friend and the jealousy of religious leaders and the spinelessness of a Roman ruler to offer forgiveness to people like you and me, he will. You see, God has always worked through both good and bad. He's not constrained by your decisions. He's not depending on you to always do the right thing so that he can work his purposes in your life. No, he'll work through your dumb decisions and he'll still achieve good through them. You see, so often we restrict ourselves to thinking that God only acts 
in massive, miraculous ways. And sometimes he does. But most of the time, he works through small, ordinary ways. Uh, Romans 8 says that he works through all things. There's nothing that he doesn't work through to achieve his good plans. And so, friends, you might wonder sometimes whether God is really there because you don't seem to see him working in your life. You might doubt sometimes whether God really cares because he doesn't seem to be stepping in when you want him to. But, friends, Esther's story is just like your story. And it's got God's fingerprints all over it. You might not notice it at first, but he is working and he has worked. He worked behind the scenes to bring you into relationship with yourself. Just think about that for a moment. If, If you're a Christian, think about all the things that needed to happen for you to become a Christian. It's probably a long list of, it just so happened that I met this person. And it just so happened that I was born into this family. And it just so happened that this person said this. It didn't just happen. God made it happen. Because he works behind the scenes. He works through ordinary circumstances. He works through your own good decisions and your bad decisions and your just stupid decisions. Even your sinful decisions. And then he probably works through a whole lot of things that weren't even decided by you. And he did it because he cares about you. He's promised to work for the good of his people. And he hasn't stopped working in you either. Because, friends, God is still working in your life and through your life to achieve his good purposes. He's going to keep using you. He's going to keep using your choices to achieve his wonderful purposes. He's going to keep using your bad choices to achieve his wonderful purposes. He's going to use your mistakes and your failures. And he'll use them for good. Friends, is God there? Does he care? You better believe he is there. He is working in your life. For your good? And for the good of your brothers and sisters, and for the good of people that you probably don't even know. He's there, and he cares. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in a story like Esther, we see your work, even when it seems to be hidden. We thank you that in even the most powerful people in the world, even the most sinful people in the world, you are able to work your good purposes. We thank you that you use your power for good, that you work in us and through us, that you have worked to bring us to a knowledge of yourself and that you continue to work to grow us and to change us and to encourage us and spur us on in following after Jesus. We stand amazed at the way that you work in your world. But Lord, I pray that you would help us see that you are absolutely there in our lives, even when we don't see you. Help us see that you care more than we can ever imagine because your great desire is for us to be your children forever.
So we praise you for that. We thank you for that. We ask that you would help us comprehend that so that we might live for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.